I'm Ray Rogers. And I'm Brad Kepler. You're listening to Fix This, a podcast exploring tech ideas and solutions to some of today's largest challenges. Today's episode is part two of our Machine Learning and Health series. If you missed part one, you can go back in the archives to hear our discussion with Julian Simon, an Amazon Web Services machine learning tech evangelist, and Dr. P. Anandan from the Wadwani Institute for Artificial Intelligence, an India-based nonprofit. Machine learning can be used by research institutions and doctors to speed the time to science, which can directly improve patient care and outcomes and reduce administrative burden. Julian Simon joined us to further explain how machine learning is changing today's medical landscape not only for patients, but also for care providers and researchers too. Both my parents were doctors. And uh, so I kind of grew up in hospitals and clinics and so on. And I was always very, very impressed by the amount of paperwork that I have to deal with. Exam reports and, and prescriptions and so on. And it looks like, you know, hospitals are more about storing and processing documents than a lot of other, uh, a lot of other organizations. So... If you give doctors and healthcare professionals the ability to process that data efficiently, you know, digitize it, extract information from it, and of course, act on it, then they can make better decisions, faster decisions, and they can improve patient outcomes. Amazon Comprehend is a natural language processing, also referred to as NLP, service that uses machine learning to find insights and relationships in text. From unstructured data, like written medical reports from a doctor, Amazon Comprehend Medical allows customers to extract information from text accurately and quickly, even for those without machine learning experience. Here's Julian further explaining what Amazon Comprehend Medical is and what the service can be used for in the real world. Comprehend Medical is about entity extraction for medical reports. So uh, you could take your prescription or you could take an exam report upload that data to AWS, call a simple API, and instantly get entity extractions. And so the the service would be able to highlight for you um, medication, uh, dosage, basically, you know, tag or highlight each specific part of the document with a very specific category. The ability to capture all that data and digitize it and then analyze it with services like Comprehend Medical, uh, makes it possible to basically extract insights from that data in, in almost in real time. This could be the difference between uh, life and death for a patient. Our next guest is from Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, most often referred to as simply Fred Hutch. Started in 1975, Fred Hutch is a 501c3 nonprofit named after the late baseball player who died of cancer. His death inspired his brother, a physician, to open a research center in honor of his memory. Fred Hutch is known for pioneering work in bone marrow transplantation and is a leader in immunotherapy, which is a way to tap the body's immune system to treat and cure cancer. With five scientific divisions spanning all aspects of cancer, prevention, cell biology, health economics, vaccines, and more, Fred Hutch is a leader in the fight to cure cancer. And they can't do it alone. They rely on community support and participation to fuel research and awareness. Fred Hutch is known for their events and fundraisers like the Obliteride, a bike ride with run and walk option. Yes, if you were at the 2019 AWS Public Sector Summit in Washington, D.C., you may have noticed stationary bikes or other attendees walking around in exercise clothes. We did an indoor version of the Obliteride, and attendees raised over $30,000 to fight cancer. That was a really inspiring moment to see the community come together. 
Fred Hutch has other notable events like Base to Space, where people climb up the Space Needle in Seattle, and the Hutch Holiday Gala. Our next guest, Emily Silgard, is a data science manager at Fred Hutch. She and Ray sat down to chat about how Fred Hutch uses machine learning and Amazon Comprehend Medical to accelerate research. Okay, so let's start all the way from the beginning. A bunch of patients walk into their doctor's office. The doctor is jotting down notes, and they're collecting all of this patient information. And then eventually it's going to go into a repository. And then this is where really your team is coming in. You're trying to use natural language processing to comb through the data as it pertains to specific studies or clinical trials. And what are the researchers trying to gather from this? Can you give me an example? A lot of our research need comes in the form of like observational studies or retrospective studies. So that means basically trying to to get as much information as possible from patients that have already been treated, right? So we can learn as much as possible from people that have already walked through the, you know, our clinical partner stores. Um, So it might look like, you know, we want to be able to tell if maybe one chemotherapy is more effective than another one in a certain patient population, Um, And the way those patient populations are defined are usually by things like their exact disease, maybe um, what years, you know, the range of years they were diagnosed, what types of therapies they had, when they stopped, when they started, if they had any specific social histories or genetic mutations, um, lots of different variables, right, to define those cohorts. And almost all of them are in these narrative forms. By clinical narratives, do you mean you're at the doctor's office and a patient sits down and the doctor's like, tell me what you're experiencing. And then the patient just rattles off a list of things and the doctor takes notes. Yeah, exactly. So you go in the doctor's office. There's lots of discrete types of data that get captured, right? When you make your appointment, maybe if you have any tests done. But a lot of the really important information about a patient, right, is this story about them that gets told by their provider, Um, So either at the point of care, they're maybe dictating or they're jotting down notes and then going in and filling in details later. But these really rich narratives have all the information that we need. Now that we kind of have the stage set, can you talk about the clinical data repository that you're working on? We get feeds from our clinical partners. And again, a lot of that is discrete data that we can use to kind of find out information about certain populations of patients. But a lot of that is coming in in these huge blobs of narrative text. So a lot of what my team does is to try to find out ways to to make that information a little bit easier to process, to try to put it in a more discrete form. It seems like every doctor would have their own style of how they're taking notes. Does this make it difficult for the clinicians to do their research? Sometimes on like a person by person basis, but also potentially like across specialties. Radiologists are writing about what they see in images and you know, whereas oncologists are writing about conversations they've had with patients and what they think some of these symptoms mean. Pathologists are writing about images that, that they're seeing on slides from specific specimens. So the things that people are talking about, the information that's being conveyed is very different across all those specialties. There are so many different layers of complexity about how this could make your job challenging. How do you go about dealing with some of that complexity? What, what does that look like from a technical standpoint? If we're trying to just automatically say whether or not these pathology reports are related to, say, lung cancer or breast cancer, uh, we might build a natural language processing model that would kind of look at all the language in that and determine what the general topic was. 
there's more complex problems where people potentially want to know not only, you know, the medications or the, the different therapies that someone's been on, but when they started and stopped those therapies or potentially what kinds of symptoms arose from those. So we'd want to first just identify what those were and then start to draw relationships between between these different entities. From what I understand before, it was people literally sitting down to comb through different records and find people that seemed like a good fit for what whatever it was that was being studied. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So right now, that's basically that's a huge bottleneck, right? It takes a lot of time for people to sit down and look through patients' records because people can have hundreds or thousands of different narrative records that outline the course of their, their clinical history. I, you know, I always like to say, you know, when it comes to machine learning in the world of natural language processing, we can't really do better at processing language than humans because it's a human invention, right? Humans are the best at processing language, but we can hope to do it a lot faster and more consistently. While humans are really great at uh, at weighing lots of different information that comes from different places and um, applying, you know, their specific subject matter expertise to processing that, we are just really slow readers. So doing all that on, you know, on a huge scale just takes so much time. And basically, we have this bottleneck where we're not getting enough of the information to our researchers fast enough. So when I think about, you know, like the the real win of of natural language processing and machine learning in the clinical domain, it's really about speeding things up. It's not totally apples to apples, but, you know, we would estimate that for one, you know, clinically trained abstractor to, to go through and basically read through an entire medical record for one patient and get all the most salient details for their course of clinical care could take a couple hours for one patient. A natural language processing algorithm that's just running through every single note and extracting important clinical entities for all of them. I mean, we can process thousands of thousands of notes in seconds. How has the cloud changed what you're able to do? The metaphor I would use sometimes, and maybe it's like feels a little bit 90s, is to say, oh, I have this great information on my computer, but, you know, it's on my computer in my apartment and the door is locked. Do you want to, you know, do you want access to this? But we, it's, you know, it's, it's a little limiting, right? And so what the cloud's doing is providing us with a single platform that we can easily and in a secure way let, let our community get access to and then provide these things as a service. And that's another important part of the story. You're dealing with sensitive data. Does the cloud make it easier to keep those records safe as you're dealing with them in mass? Sometimes it makes it a lot easier to keep it safe. Obviously, we have... Uh, really stringent security guidelines through HIPAA. And it's um, it's important to have a cloud environment where we have those security protocols locked down appropriately. But then once we have our security set, then we have something in a place where it's, you know, secure at rest, which makes it easy to provide things as a service. We can certainly do that in our kind of like on-premises solutions, but things get difficult when you try to move things or move data around essentially and get it into the right hands. Next up, we have a researcher and professor from Emory University. Mental health can be a difficult topic to discuss, but one thing is certain. The more we understand it, the less taboo it will become. Dr. Philip Wolf, a professor of psychology at Emory University, researches language semantics and machine learning to predict human decision-making and mental health. 
Dr. Wolf's work on predicting a person's potential for a psychotic break is a fascinating example of machine learning at work. As Emily said from the previous interview, humans are capable of understanding complex language and meaning. We are the inventors of language after all. But can machine learning spot things that we can't in language? Dr. Wolf sat down with Ray to discuss some of his latest research. Many areas of health, whether it be cardiac disease or heart disease or blood pressure, I mean, we've seen tremendous advances over the last 20 or so years. But um, in the case of mental illness, we've seen almost no change, no improvement. And I think um, one of the strategies that over the last 20 years or so has been to try to look for biomarkers, like try to use blood proteins or brain structure to try to make these kinds of predictions. And while those might be very effective for physical illnesses, they're not necessarily as effective at predicting mental illnesses. To get yeah. at mental illness, you want to look at a behavior that's close to the to mental cognition, which would be language. Yeah, that makes total sense. You can't necessarily use physiological markers like proteins and things like that because it's not offering insight into how the brain is working necessarily. It might be a clue into why the brain would be working the way that it is, exactly. but it's not how. Exactly. That's absolutely right. And I think when it comes to interventions, I, I think we're going to need that biological understanding. That's not going to go away. But um, we, we need, I think, to add some extra tools for, in the case of mental illness, including like basically analyses of like of language to help us better understand and predict what will happen. I imagine that the amount of compute resources this needs is massive. Is that why your research turned to the cloud? Yes, yes. So what exactly does this research look like? Dr. Wolf explained what happens from data collection to analysis. We, we have videos of them. And they've undergone what's called a structured interview. Having a structured interview is good because it, it brings out speech. It brings out language from the individual. Without that sort of set of questions, uh, people often kind of um, stop say, talking. They don't have much to say. And we need a reasonably large sample to, to get a sort of stable result. And then what happens with that interview video? It will be transcribed. That's the beginning of a pipeline of analyses that ultimately can be analyzed for various kinds of signals. Backing up a step, before I have a sentence, representation for the sentence, I need representations for every word. Those are also vectors. To get the sentence, we just add those vectors and we normalize them. In other words, kind of take an average of them. And what they represent is a point in some sort of semantic space. And the simplest case, let's say imagine a list that has only two numbers in it, mm -hmm. then let's say the numbers were one and one. You could graph that. These programs, what they try to achieve is a, a, a set of representations such that words that are similar meaning will tend to be close in that space. Got it. So you'll see like be, a cluster of data points. Exactly. So words like the word dog, you might find cat and wolf and canine. These will all be relatively close. In terms of our initial example, dog might be at 1, 1, wolf might be at 0 0.9, 0 0.9, mm -hmm. and cat, you know, 0 0.9, 0 0.8, something like that. You know, really close. They'd form a cluster. Right. We can uh, also re-express the language in uh, representations that can be analyzed, you know, with machine learning. 
we've looked at um, identified two variables that we feel is are especially predictive of um, conversion to psychosis, and and one of those is as I mentioned was semantic density, and the other one basically an analysis of the semantic content of their of what they talk about and how that differs from let's say what people normally talk about, like how the content of these individuals' uh, speech stands out from what is typical in a conversation. We express all the words in terms of vectors. These are like lists of numbers. And then once every word has been expressed in that way, we can then generate a, a, a representation for every sentence that the individual produced. What does that representation look like? Is it just a string of numbers or is it sort of like a colored density map? If, for the most part, at that stage especially, what we have is um, just a long list of numbers. And so what you would see, would, let's say on a spreadsheet or a, a file, would be a label expressing like sentence one, two, three, so on. And next to that label would be a list of, of numbers. And those numbers, they represent a summary of the meaning of that sentence. From your initial results, what did you find? How many people were part of this original cohort? And what did you conclude, if anything? So what we do find is that on average, those who convert to become psychotic tended to use words that more overlapped in meaning. We tended to need fewer words to reconstruct their sentence vectors than in normal individuals. So it's as if the individuals that ultimately converted were less able to produce dense sentences. They produced less dense sentences. That was a powerful predictor of future psychosis. It turns out when you looked at the number of words each group produced that is healthy and converters, they produced almost the same. They produced no difference. If you were to record someone from the control group who you did not predict to have a psychotic break, they may have used 3,000 words, for example, but so would somebody who is at high risk. It really matters which words they're using. Yes, it was about the content. It wasn't about the number of words they used, like the average number of words they used in their sentences. So this is why an analysis of the meaning is critical. I mean, this is really powerful because language is such a key way to look at somebody's thought process. And so now machine learning is really giving you the power to systematically analyze the language and to essentially make it into data points and then right. come to a meaningful conclusion. There's just simply no way to analyze sentences with respect to their semantic density that's realistic, that, that can be used to predict Psychosis, And one of the things we ultimately find is our ability to predict psychosis on the basis of semantic density and as well as an analysis of the semantics of what they were talking about. There was this other variable, which was simply what do they tend to talk about? And there was a tendency for them to talk about voices and sounds. And what was interesting is the method we used did not rely on key words. It, I mean, it wasn't simply keeping track of what words they used. It was a method that was sensitive to the meaning of the entire sentence. In the sense, it was picking up on the latent meaning. And when you combine that with the semantic density, we were able to outperform all neuropsychological tests out there. Using neuropsychological tests, the prediction accuracy was about 80 to 
Using language features, we were able to predict uh, psychosis with uh, 93% accuracy. For more information on today's guests, visit fredhutch.org. And to learn more about the obliteride and other ways to get involved with Fred Hutch, visit fredhutch.org slash ways to give. To learn more about all of the work being done by Dr. Wolf and his colleagues, visit emory.edu. And last but not least, to learn more about AWS machine learning, visit aws.amazon.com forward slash machine dash learning. A big thanks to our guests, Julian Simon, Emily Silgard, and Dr. Philip Wolf. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fix This, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. We'll be here on the next one.